This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to independent researcher Megan Bedette and she's going to be talking to us about the missing women of Afrin. Afrin being the Kurdish city in Syria that is currently occupied by Turkish-backed militants. It has been for two years now and in that time many women have gone missing. They've been kidnapped, tortured and forced into sex trafficking. There's not a lot of attention being brought to it for some reason so Megan has been doing a lot of research. She's going to be telling us uh, what's going on. Apologies for the sound in this episode. I don't know why my laptop recorded the laptop audio and not the mic but Megan sounds fine. Support us at patreon.com slash popular front. So I think before we get into the project that you're doing and the missing women in Afrin, maybe you can just give us some context and explain what has happened there for anyone that doesn't know and what you know what is continuing to happen, who is there, who's controlling the area, that sort of thing. Yeah, so Afrin is a majority Kurdish region in northwestern Syria, uh, right on the border with Turkey. It was one of the first regions in 2011-2012 uh, when Syrian Kurds were able to push the Syrian government out and start setting up their own structures that had um, the new administration in that way. Demographically, it is... Um, nearly 90% Kurdish, the highest estimates say, with uh, Yazidi minorities, Alevi minorities, um, and some other communities living there. And it was one of the most peaceful and stable regions throughout the conflict because the ISIS fight never really got there. The Syrian government never really tried to take it back after leaving. And so the uh, YPG and the Autonomous Administration were able to set up their system of governance pretty well. Industry from other areas in the northwestern part of the country moved there due to instability. So it is the only region of the country, as far as I know, where the economy actually grew during the course of the conflict. So from 2012 until 2018, you had a relatively stable, peaceful region, highlighting in a lot of ways the autonomous administration system at its best, governance-wise. Um, and what you did have throughout those years, because of the location on the border, there would be you know, shelling and there would be threats from Turkey, threats from Turkish-backed rebel groups. But it never really became a serious threat as to affect governance there. But in 2018, that changed. Um, there was, in January of that month, the start of a Turkish military operation to completely take over the entire Afrin Canton and incorporate it into the Turkish and Turkish-backed rebel governance structures. And this went entirely uncondemned by much of the international community. Erdogan stated in a speech on the first day of the operation that the goal of taking over Afrin was to change its demographics and resettle other Syrian refugees from other parts of the country there, which is, you know, textbook ethnic cleansing, um, forcing refugees to return to a country that's not stable against international law in many ways. There was no outcry. Exactly. It's like literally the definition of ethnic cleansing. And yet still people that will call one place ethnic cleansing when that exact thing happens 
will suddenly call Afrin, uh, what was it, population change or demographic change. A lot of weird kind of weasel words going around with this situation. No, always. And that was very evident throughout when this was happening. You'd see, you know, all of these horrible videos coming out of these Turkish backfighters saying that they wanted to kill all the infidel Kurds, uh, saying that they wanted to, you know, take over the region, attack all of these minority communities there. And people were just saying, oh, well, you know, there's there's grievances on both sides. This is very difficult for everyone involved. And so it was, you know, I think in my view, one of the clearest examples of one country unilaterally attacking another population with no good reason to um, and committing a lot of atrocities through the process. And yet there was no real identification of the threat as being what it was. So that operation was over. Turkey took control of the area in March of 2018. Um, they've been occupying it since then. Uh, rebel governance, Turkish-backed governance, has been horrific in a lot of ways, uh, which we'll get to with the findings from the project. But again, there's been sort of complete silence about what the reality of this occupation has been for the people who used to live there. And I say used to live there because estimates suggest that up to, you know, 70-80% of the original population has been displaced. It's no longer a Kurdish majority area. The Yazidi minority in particular um, no longer exists there. The vast majority of them have fled. Their religious sites have been destroyed. So it's terrible, really. It is ethnic cleansing. It's a horrific military occupation. And it's one that has never really been identified in that way by a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's really weird. I mean, you know, if you start pointing out what's happened there, people might say, well, you're just biased to Rajava and the YPG. And it's like, what? Well, like by, by showing people actual facts and explaining exactly what happened in real time, that's somehow biased now, <laughs> you know, like, I don't get it. It's a very, in my profession, like within war journalism, like it's a very, very strange situation where, I don't know, people will kind of shrug it off and forget about it when, you know, actually it's like you said, it's an incredibly bad situation. Um, how, how long have these, uh, the, the Turkish back militias have kind of occupied Afrin now? So it's been um, over two years, almost two and a half years. It'll be in September since uh, March 2018. And there's been really no improvement in any of the conduct that was seen from the very first stages of the invasion and occupation. So it's been a long time and very little's changed. Right. Well, give us an idea of what life is like for people living under the, uh, the occupation of these Turkish-backed militias. Yeah. So what I found in researching for this project and what is starting to come out in a lot more reports from these international organizations uh, that are reporting on it is that for the original population of the city, it is ruled by the whims of Turkish-backed militias. They fight all the time, often over looted and stolen property. People are subject to these kidnappings and arbitrary detentions that we're going to be getting into for reasons that relate to, you know, oftentimes in a lot of cases, just crossing a militia member the wrong way or living in a house or operating a business that an armed group wants to take over. The Kurdish language and Kurdish culture has been forcibly removed from public life. If you see... Um, images of openings of new institutions, of street signs in the region, you'll see Turkish flags and the Turkish language 
No one in Afrin spoke Turkish before the invasion. It wasn't a local language that was spoken there. But you see it more than you see anything Kurdish these days. That is something that really fascinates me because a lot of these people that say, oh, Rajab is an ethno-state, despite it probably being one of the most you know, racially diverse and free areas in Syria, they'll say that and they'll say, well, it should be Arabic, it should blah, blah. Okay, fine. So then when Afrin happens... Why aren't you then using that same energy to talk about why there suddenly is Turkish? Like, I mean, the Arabic, you can say, yeah, of course, it's an Arabic region. A lot of people speak Arabic. But Turkey, like, it's very clear what's going on there. It's just moving in. Well, it's, it's like you said, it's, uh, it's an ethnic cleansing. You know, it's a part of it. Yeah, and it's um, integration into the Turkish system in a lot of ways. There are other people who've done more research on this than me, but you can see very clearly uh, Turkish officials will cross the border to go there. It's Turkish NGOs doing a lot of work setting up these institutions. You even see uh, regarding the kidnappings and arbitrary detentions, Syrians being you know, kidnapped off the streets by armed groups, handed over to Turkish forces and sent to Turkey to go on trial for crimes, you know, quote unquote, that were committed on Syrian territory before Turkey had any control of it as an occupying power. I mean, I don't even know how to list all the ways that that's illegal. You can't do that. You can't, you know, it is not a violation of Turkish law for a Syrian citizen on Syrian territory to do something. So they really are both changing the demographics and trying in a lot of ways to integrate it into a lot of Turkish systems in a way that's very detrimental to the local population. Uh, Good old NATO. Um, You've started this project, right? It's about the missing women of Afrin. Tell us about the project and, you know, why you've had to do this. Yeah, so I started this a little while ago because I had been doing a lot of research uh, for another thing on the disparities in uh, women's rights and freedoms and empowerment between the autonomous administration and other governance in Syria. As you know, and as I'm sure many listeners know, in the autonomous administration, they've done incredible work in not only giving women more representation in high levels of institutions. You see this with the co-chair system and all of the leadership, but actually empowering women and ensuring legal protections for their rights in ways that neither the Syrian regime nor the Syrian opposition by any means has done. So you have all these advances in the autonomous administration, whether that's the existence of the YPJ, the armed women fighting ISIS, the women represented in political leadership, or even just basic legal protections, trying to put things like personal status on an equal footing, you know, banning child marriage, that kind of thing, that sort of basic legal protections and equality. And then in areas controlled by the Syrian opposition, you have none of that. You have um, one study that I found suggested that the representation of women in opposition local councils in, I believe, 2016, was it something like two or three percent? It's slightly higher in the opposition political bodies that exist in exile, but there's very little women's leadership, very little women's representation, and very little legal protection against any kind of discrimination or gender-based violence. So in looking into that disparity, um, some of the areas where that shows up the most is um, Afrin, which was taken over from the autonomous administration by these rebels, as well as the other occupied areas that were taken over by Turkish-backed groups in 2019. 
And one of the ways that I found most effective to show this, and what is, in my opinion, one of many just horrific violations of human rights, are these kidnappings and disappearances of women and what happens to them in the reports we've seen from, you know, the prisons operated by these groups and where they're taken afterward. So I started looking into following local human rights monitors to find every report that I could of identified people who had been, you know, kidnapped by these armed groups. I was able to find over 150 cases of women and girls whose names are known who were kidnapped in Afrin going back to really the first weeks that these Turkish-backed groups contested and controlled territory. The first incident I was able to find was in January of 2018, so just days, weeks after the operation had started. And that goes all the way until these most recent weeks and months. In July of this year alone, there were five reported kidnappings of women whose names and identities were known. One of them was released, the other four are missing, we don't know where they are. So it's really this systemic problem, and it's made more horrifying because in a lot of the reports that I found where um, women who had gotten out, usually with their families paying ransoms that most Syrians cannot afford, a lot of times they have to collect the money from relatives in Europe or you know, take these other extreme measures to get their family out of prison. It suggests that in Syrian National Army custody, there is torture, which is systemic. There is sexual and gender-based violence that is systemic. There were reports in 2018 of Turkish personnel in Afrin operating a human trafficking ring um, that was exposed by um, some members of the Free Syrian Army groups affiliated with Turkey that had a dispute with them and, you know, posted the identities of some of these Turkish personnel doing this on Telegram. So this is widely known that all of these human rights abuses happen. And a lot of local people take a lot of risk to get this information out and publish it at all. But I wasn't seeing it talked about in any mainstream discussion of Syria. And so I thought that it would be important to put all of this information together and show the horrible violence that these women, predominantly Kurdish, are facing in an area that was once arguably um, one of the most advanced places in terms of women's rights in the entire region. And one thing I will say as well, you mentioned at the start there, like the, the situation in Rojava, I mean, you're calling it the autonomous administration, but anybody who doesn't know, it's essentially people controlling Rojava, YPG affiliated political parties, blah, blah. So the one thing that is real there, that, you know, I spent time there literally going to all these women's institutions with Robert Evans. And that is, you know, there's a lot of problems within the autonomous administration there. It is not all rosy. It is not all like leftist paradise as people make out. And certainly the idea that there's no capitalism there is, is absurd. However, one thing that is very, very real I've seen it myself from like military commanders to just like basic things as like women walking through the street is the kind of inclusion of women's equality out of everything there. That is the one thing that I saw and was like, this is very, very real. So that's one thing that you actually, you know, I think is very true and real there. Um, and secondly, like, I think that's maybe like, I don't know. This is just kind of speculating, but I feel like that's almost why they're going so hard against the women in Afrin in terms of kidnap. 
because I have seen some footage, like, for example, when Havrin Khalaf was murdered, it's almost like revenge against the women. I mean, what, what do you think to that? I think that's absolutely true. I think that... Um you have those incidents like that horrific assassination uh, last October, where I think that they very much are these groups. Their worldview is fundamentally opposed to the idea that women can be leaders, that they can fight, that they can govern. Uh, they're fundamentally opposed to really a lot of aspects of the way that Rojava is governed. But I think that that aspect in particular goes against you know, their fundamentalist beliefs. And I think that the way that they've cracked down on basically all aspects of particularly Kurdish women's lives, but all women's lives in Afrin shows that they are you know, going after those advances in particular. Um, as just one example, the only research that I've seen done on the makeup of the uh, Turkish-backed local councils that were set up there after the occupation says that the uh, council for the region has 107 members, of whom 100 are men and 7 are women, and that in three of the uh, local district councils, no women are represented. Three of them have two women represented, and one of them has just one woman represented. So clearly this is um, a huge decrease in representation from what you would have had under the autonomous administration. You have laws and uh, regulations enforced by a lot of these armed groups saying that women can't leave the house unless they're dressed you know, in very conservative Islamic dress, regardless of their religion. This is applied to non-Muslim communities that still exist there too. Um, and you have these kidnappings, you have forced marriages, which are horrific. There are stories of these fighters, you know, going to people's houses and demanding that they hand over their often underage daughters to marry a member of the armed group. And there's no consequences for this. This goes unpunished. And there's at least one instance that I found where the report on the case suggested that the civilian mayor of the town where one of these forced marriages took place actually came to the home of the family whose daughter was kidnapped along with one of the members of the armed group basically to pressure the family into accepting it so there's complete impunity turkey doesn't want to stop it no one is trying to do anything to you know do anything about these attacks on women's rights and really their basic safety in the occupied areas and where are you getting this information from? You know, a lot of people will say, well, no, this isn't true. This is just propaganda. They'll call you and me all, all sorts under the sun. You know how it goes. You'll get a, a hundred wolf emojis on these uh, tweets when it comes out. But like, where are you getting information? How do you know this is happening? So I've looked through a variety of local human rights monitors, including those that are pro-autonomous um, administration, as well as those that support the Kurdish opposition parties that oppose the autonomous administration. And that's one thing that I've seen that's really interesting is that even these Kurdish parties that have a lot of differences with the way that Rojava is governed, have still documented um, the way that Kurds, the entire Kurdish community, has been targeted in the region. Um, there are more general monitors like the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights that report on this. There's a wonderful organization called Syrians for Truth and Justice that does great investigative work. They've reported on this. 
And we even recently saw a terrible video from one of the prisons actually operated by these groups that showed a group of women being led out somewhere by another armed group. And a lot of local monitors and media that have investigated those cases, you know, have spoken to the relatives of the women who are believed to be there, who don't know where they are, who in many cases haven't seen them in, you know, years, um, over a year and a half now. So there's a variety of local sources that what I've been doing has been compiling these sources together, in some cases reaching out to some of the local human rights monitors for clarification, and basically putting them all together in one place so that really the institutions whose job it is, who have the money, who have the access to be able to investigate these things, can quite frankly do their job, you know? So I think that this comes from enough different sources to appear very credible. And I think that having seen, you know, that one video where people who had been reported to have disappeared, you know, months or even over a year ago were then found, where a lot of these monitors and media outlets, you know, spoke to their relatives and confirmed that, where we have video testimonies posted in a lot of places um, of relatives of these women and even women who have um, gotten out of these uh, the custody of these groups and escaped and spoke about their experiences, um, I think it's very real. I think that it would be hard to call it propaganda when you look at just the number of sources that there are. Yeah, no, um, I've, I've had a look myself as well and certainly um, looking at the work of uh, Alexander McKeever, like he's not focusing so much on the disappearances, but he has focused on the militant groups that are going in and out of Afrin and certainly you know this idea that they're they're just the FSA is simply not true and actually a discredit to the FSA that did rose up you know to fight the regime and and their authoritarianism what is now happening is you know it's a lot of it they are jihadists <laughs> there are videos where they're literally screaming you know Allah Akbar we will kill the kafar like you know talking about the Kurds and referring to them as infidels because they're you know many of them are not like religious so, yeah, I mean, a lot of these groups are, you know, the, the kind of dregs of a lot of militant groups that have been in and around Syria for a long time. Um, which groups do you know specifically are doing the kidnappings and, you know, the abuse of the women? Or is it kind of like a mixture of just everybody? So um, one thing I do want to mention before I get into that is you're absolutely right that this is a discredit to um, the opposition at the very beginning. And one thing that I found in my research of more broad issues of women's rights and representation in Syria is that women's representation in opposition structures was actually higher than it is now at the very start of the conflict when those structures were created and that these incredibly brave women were essentially pushed out of that work on the ground by these extremists as these extremists gained prominence. So it's very sad and it's important to note that, you know, the reason why Rojava is the way it is, is not because it happened overnight that women were able to build all these institutions. It's that, you know, they fought for it. They demanded to be included and have their concerns mainstreamed in this national struggle. And over the years of that internal struggle taking place in the Kurdish movement, you got to a place where that could happen in Rojava and be extended to a variety of communities. 
And it's tragic for, you know, the women who did want a better Syria and who did try to participate and who did make sacrifices that uh, their participation in opposition structures has been pushed out in this way. So um, I'm glad you mentioned that. And then regarding the groups that are the worst offenders, so what I found in my research of the incidents that were identified, um, most of the allegations do contain claims about which armed groups were responsible. And so of the 132 cases I found where a claim of an armed group being responsible uh, was mentioned, 34 of them were attributed to the Turkish-backed military police, which are um, forces created out of members of the different Syrian National Army groups, the jihadist groups, but organized under a different umbrella. Um, 17 incidents were attributed to the civilian police, which is another Turkish-backed force assembled in the same way from uh, those armed group members. And 15 were attributed to the Hamza division, which is a predominantly Turkmen group, um, a group that actually received U.S. support at one point through one of the programs arguing, um, arming those groups uh, a few years back. And the interesting thing about that group is that they were the group responsible for running that illegal prison that was seen in that video where all of those kidnapped women uh, were identified and where, sadly, we don't know what happened to them after that video where people identified them from um, was posted. We don't know which group um, has kept them. We don't know if they've been sent to Turkey. We know nothing about anything that's gone on from all of the research that's recently been done on that. So they're a particularly bad group. The Sultan Murad division is also particularly bad, and they specifically have been alleged to have been responsible for at least three or four recent claims of uh, forced marriages and sexual assault in the region. So they're also known to be bad in terms of uh, the treatment of women. Yeah, um, you mentioned that situation with that, um, you know, that prison they'd set up. Maybe explain that. A lot of people haven't seen that or don't really know what, what happened with that. So essentially uh, what happened was there was a dispute between members of these armed groups. I believe it was over like a very, very small payment on credit in a shop owned by um, someone who had connections to one of the groups. And of course, this turned into, you know, active conflict, which happens a lot. I mean, these groups are all on the same side and theoretically Turkey controls all of them, but they fight all the time. Those clashes often kill civilians. There's really no way of even keeping the slightest degree of order between these groups that are all ostensibly part of the same structure. So this is a common occurrence, but was uncommon. what was uncommon about um, that particular incident, which occurred in late May of this year, was it ultimately ended in another group getting access to a building that the Hamza division controlled. And when they went in, they found kidnapped civilians some of whom had been there um, for, you know, months, if not over a year, people who had disappeared um, in, you know, 2018 and 2019. And the video shows a group of women being led out of the building. Um, we don't know where they went. There's been a lot of research into that by some of the monitors that I've been following, but it's not clear to this day what's happened to them. But the video was very important because before then there had been really no 
direct visual evidence like that, that these groups were imprisoning so many people in, you know, random sites that they control. It's not like these are, you know, identified prisons built by Turkish authorities as the whatever reason prison, you know, with a court system and all of the things that a normal legal system would have. These are just buildings that have been taken over. People are being held in terrible conditions. Their families don't know where they are. And that video was proof that that was happening. And that was only one site controlled by one armed group. So we can imagine, you know, what's going on in the rest of the region. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a friend there, uh, well, a friend from Afrin. And, you know, I, I don't want to say too much about who they are. But, like, I know that her family live there still under, you know, under the... Turkish-backed militants and are very scared, you know, they kind of keep indoors, they try not to be about too much. Um, you know, what, what have you found in your research? What is life like for, you know, everybody else outside of this kind of kidnapping situation? Yeah, no, I've definitely, um, from research and also from talking to people I know who uh, have or who had family there, uh, it's exactly that kind of situation. Um, people are afraid to go out. Um, if you look like you have money or own a business, uh, if you have agricultural land, that makes you a target. These groups uh, confiscate property on a regular basis. Um, they have kidnapped and killed people in efforts to take over their homes, businesses, olive groves, um, all kinds of property. So people try very hard to avoid interactions with these groups. Um, People also have to worry about interactions with the civilian population that has been brought into the region from other parts of Syria. Um, a lot of these are people who have, you know, connections to armed groups or um, who are sympathetic to the opposition in general. And it's a tragic situation in some ways because, you know, these people, many of them were displaced in, you know, equally horrific campaigns that destroyed their homes and livelihoods as well. But you also have a dynamic where they come to Afrin and because of their connections with the armed groups and the Turkish authorities uh, that are there as well, you know, they act in a very similar way towards the remaining people who live there. So there's also been... Um, incidents of civilians being beaten and killed by other civilians who have connections to these armed groups, again, in disputes over property. And then the local population is also um, virtually unrepresented in a lot of these institutions that the occupying authorities set up. And when they are represented, they're treated differently from um, civilians who are perceived to be supportive of the government. Um, there's been reports of people being fired from institutions, uh, governing institutions, because they're Kurdish. Um, I have some of the reports in my database of women who were kidnapped who were employees of the municipal water company. And I think it's safe to say that, at least from what I've seen, that doesn't happen to the um, employees of these institutions who are seen as being you know, more affiliated with the occupying government. So there's violence, there's discrimination, there's political exclusion. And I think what we also have to remember is that the people who are there are only a fraction of the region's original population. The, a lot of people who used to live there have fled to other parts of Syria or even abroad. Um, a lot of them live 
in refugee camps in the Shaba region um, in northwestern Syria, just a bit south of Afrin. And that's a terrible situation, too. You know, people there, they live in tents um, because of the Syrian government and the um, Turkish-backed militias that surround the area. It's very difficult for aid to get in. So really, whether you're still there or whether you've been displaced, um, things are not good at all for the people from Afrin. Yeah, I mean, ironically, what they're doing with kind of stopping Kurdish people having jobs in their own areas is exactly what the regime did. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I just, the whole situation stinks. I mean, to be honest, I don't think there's much political ideology left within the groups occupying the region from what I've seen and the footage, you know, there's a lot of footage of like you said, they're, they're clashing with each other, infighting. It does seem to be kind of bandit country now. Do you know what I mean? Oh, exactly. I think that um, there's a lot of discussion over, you know, the political or ideological reasons behind some of this bad behavior. And while absolutely, you know, many of these groups are jihadists and do subscribe to that extremist ideology, a lot of it's just, you know, crime and just ethnically, religiously motivated um, hatred towards these other populations. And it's also very in line with Turkish tactics towards their own uh, Kurdish and their other minority populations as well, because this discrimination, the arbitrary arrests on all kinds of falsified charges, this mistreatment of, you know, these populations perceived to be opposed to the government is all something that's happened within Turkey, you know, for decades. So in some ways, this is not new or exclusive to these militias. Yeah. Um, you spoke about something earlier about this, uh, I think you said like a sex trafficking ring where there were members of, I think you said the Turkish military were involved. That I, I kind of read a little bit about that when it came out. It was a very big deal, which kind of vanished quite quickly. Um, maybe you can explain to us uh, in more detail what was that about? Yeah, so, um, and here I do want to uh, cite uh, someone who I believe has also appeared on this podcast because uh, the first person I saw, you know, breaking these images was uh, Chaki, the open source researcher. Chaki, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant open source researcher. Um, you've had him on here. Very good. Um, and I cited his uh, findings in this article, essentially, where there were, um, there had been, a, I believe it was an FSA media official, and in some dispute between one of these groups and the, you know, Turkish authorities over just some element of how the region was run. Again, there's a lot of infighting. One of the groups decided to. Um, publish information, you know, in retaliation showing that um, Turkish forces were operating this human trafficking ring. They published identity cards. They published photos of some of the women, um, which I did not share. I don't think um, that needs to be spread any further. Um, but yeah, no, this was not talked about outside of, you know, these Kurdish and pro-Kurdish researchers on Twitter. And I think that that is a shame because with an actual investigation, people could look into that. One thing that I picked up on following the story was that immediately after uh, that news had broken, there were then reports that a number of Turkish personnel had been withdrawn from Afrin in connection to their involvement in human trafficking in that scandal. 
So if that were true, and if that were something that had been investigated more by people with the capacity to do so, I mean, you know, who knows what would have been found? Who knows if that's um, what's happening to some of these women and girls who are being kidnapped to this day? Um, I know recently it was reported that they found Yazidi women who were kidnapped and enslaved by ISIS in Turkey, you know, still held by the ISIS-affiliated individuals who enslaved them. So this is very clearly something that the Turkish authorities have no problem with whatsoever. And I think that if that were to be, again, looked into by those institutions responsible for doing so, um, I would be, you know, horrified but not surprised to see what they would find. It's, it's so weird to me, actually, because I know, you know, people are going to think, oh, you're just bashing whatever, but I don't care. Like, this is a NATO member. Now, I know NATO is, you know, I mean, fucking hell, they don't do a lot these days other than just kind of stay in place to keep various pieces here and there. But this is a NATO member caught running a fucking, like, sex trafficking ring. I mean, let's not call it sex. It's a rape trafficking ring in Afrin. And just nothing happens. I just don't get it. It's very weird. I mean, let alone like nothing happening. It's independent researchers like yourself and Haki doing this work rather than it hitting front pages as it probably should. Why do you think that is? I'm not trying to bash anyone here. I don't want to like start some like, you know, mudslinging thing. I just want to like kind of get an idea. Why do you think that is? I mean, I have my own opinions, but it's just weird. Yeah. So in my personal view, um, I will be very frank with this. I say this publicly often. I think that many people who cover Syria do not want to lose access. They don't want to lose access to be able to go to Turkey. And quite frankly, these aren't people who are going to the border. These aren't people who are going to Kurdish cities in Turkey to see what's going on there. These are people who sit in Istanbul and post photos of the lovely meal that they got at a restaurant and the beautiful scenery and who really have no understanding of what's going on in that country and the ways that so many communities there are being targeted by Erdogan's government. Because if they said something about that, um, they'd be kicked out. I know you know firsthand exactly what happens to people who do critical reporting from Turkey. Yeah, you, you get fucked up and thrown in a prison cell, yeah. <laughs> exactly, you know, and that, I mean, that kind of willingness to take that risk isn't something that I think a lot of these people have. And I think also the consensus in the policy sphere in the United States uh, because of that NATO alliance has always leaned towards Turkey throughout the course of the conflict in Syria, even as the opposition went away from its original ideals and became, um, you know, very jihadist, very pro-Turkey. It's always been a consensus in favor of that opposition. And challenging that in those circles not only leads to um, lack of, you know, being represented in those conversations, but people actively, I mean, you've seen it on Twitter just like we have, people, you know, ascribe all of these personal attacks and, you know, nefarious motivations to anyone who questions, you know, okay, well, whatever these groups were 10 years ago, here's what they are now, why is that? Or, you know... Why is Erdogan doing this? Why is this happening in Turkey? Um, people don't like to question it. And they, you know, institute these social consequences in their circles for people who do question it. 
So that leaves it to, you know, people who are doing this because they care about family and friends. They care about, you know, these basic ideals in their own free time. And while I admire the work of, you know, everyone who does this, um, there's so many brilliant people looking into these issues. It shouldn't be like that because it's not our jobs to do that for the people who have the resources to do it. Yeah, I think... um... I think as well, like there's a lot of kind of gaslighting going on. I mean, I hate that word, but it is true where the people that are incredibly biased towards this idea that, you know, Rajava is this kind of authoritarian hellhole, which, you know, go there if you want. (laughs) Like it's not like the people that are biased to that will then say to you, well, you're biased. Uh, You're just biased to the Kurds. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but like literally, the, like we've just done here, the thing we're laying out here is facts and what has actually happened, what has been recorded by these groups themselves. Like if you look at what happened to Havrin Kalaf, like it, it wasn't like someone, it wasn't word of mouth. They filmed themselves after shooting her in the fucking head. Like the this is not something that is a conspiracy. They did it themselves and chose to send that footage out there into the world themselves. You see what I mean? Yeah, and not only did they film it, like one of the people, um, one of the cameramen who filmed that assassination, uh, one of the media guys with uh, Arar al-Sharkia, He's in Afrin. He is posted on Facebook from an account that people have authenticated to be his from the region with a geotag. So this man who filmed a brutal assassination of a Kurdish female politician who has no regret for that, who supports that, is living freely in this area, probably in a stolen home, probably participating in, you know, who knows what, stealing resources and terrorizing these people. And he's openly there, you know, there's complete impunity. What, what's what's going on then with your project, Megan? Like, what, what's the main focus? How are you kind of moving forward to help as well as gathering the information? So I've been working to share this information with essentially anyone who wants to listen. Um, that's why I publicized it. I want media to see this. I want international organizations to see this. I want governments to see this because I think that if all of these claims are provided, that means that people with the capacity to do so can look into you know, what's happening. They can get those interviews. They can get that access to some of these areas. Though I believe Turkey actually doesn't allow um, mainstream international media and human rights organizations into Afrin at all, because you know I'm sure that they don't want them to find what they would find there. You see the same thing going on within Turkey itself. But I'm essentially trying to share this with, you know, these media organizations, these other stakeholders in the human rights sphere, these uh, government institutions, if they're interested in listening as well, to basically say, look, here's what's going on. Um, You should look into this. And again, just based on facts, not based on any kind of ideological view of what should or shouldn't be happening in the region. Just here are facts about what these groups admit to doing and what has become a pattern of behavior. Um, I know recently a report just came out from the Office of the Inspector General with the U.S. Department of Defense that mentioned uh, these abuses going on in Afrin, including specifically the kidnapping of Kurdish and Yazidi women for ransom by armed groups. So I hope that, you know, governments are listening um, 
the data that I put out has been cited in a couple different news articles um, since it's gone on, uh, since it was published, which I think is good. I just want there to be more awareness and more um, people looking into this information who have the capacity to go further with it and find, you know, get to the bottom of what's going on. And ideally, you know, put pressure on Turkey to change these conditions because I think that's what has to happen. They're not going to do anything to stop it unless there's consequences for them if they don't stop. Not only these kidnappings, not only the torture and sexual violence and all of these other atrocities that we've talked about, but really just the daily terror of civilian life, particularly for Kurdish civilians in the occupied areas. That has to end. And I think that the work of documenting these violations and making sure that people know that it's going on is something that has to be done because, you know, as we've talked about, no one's going to do that um, of their own accord. Yeah, no, I think what you're doing is excellent. Um, where can people kind of, you know, engage with it, look at it, see what's going on? Yeah, so there is a website. It is missingafrinwomen.org. And if you go to the data page, uh, there's an interactive map um, where you can click on each individual incident. You can see the names, the location of the incident, um, the date of the alleged kidnapping, and then any other information about the case, um, you know, allegations of ill treatment in custody, and the sources uh, that the claim came from. A lot of these have multiple sources, um, including, you know, sources from monitors and outlets of different ideological backgrounds, um, which I think, you know, is a strong case for their credibility. So you can see that as well as the table uh, listing all of the cases that are on the map. So I would encourage anyone listening to this who's interested to go look. Um, you can see the scale of the problem yourself. And yeah, just I think that people have to pay attention to this. People can't look away. People can't say that they don't know what's happening because we do know what's happening. And that's the first step to doing something about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, Megan, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap this up? Um, I think that we've had a great conversation. Um, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come on the podcast. And I just want to reiterate that you know, I think a lot of people look at these conflicts and see that as, you know, I'm someone sitting in Washington, D.C. or in a European capital or something like that, and I know what's best for all of these people. But at the end of the day, these are real people. These are real families being torn apart in this way. These are real people who are, you know, being terrorized by these groups. These are people who don't know when their mother, their sister is ever going to come back home. They don't know why they disappeared. And I think that we have to remember that at the end of the day, this sort of thing is unacceptable. People shouldn't have to live like this. The people in Afrin did nothing to deserve this. They were displaced in a war of aggression. They're being targeted by groups that have no regard for human rights. This is textbook ethnic cleansing. And that has to stop. And at the very least, I think anyone can raise awareness of that. Anyone can follow that. And anyone can see, looking at the scale of the problem, why it's wrong. So I just hope that people continue to look at the reality of this situation. And I hope that that can lead to change. Well, yeah, let's hope so. Where can, um, where can people find you online and message you and show you, you know, I guess there will be people that maybe have data that don't know that this is going on. 
Oh yeah, so the you can find the project uh, again. It's missingafrinwomen.org, and it's on Twitter at afrinwomen. That is the best way to contact the project. Uh, there's an email on the website. If you know anything about an incident, if you have something that you want me to see, you can send it there. Um, you can share the data, and I will be updating with every new report of cases that I see. That will go on there. I'm putting out monthly reports as well to sort of summarize what goes on month to month. So you can find that online. Please reach out. Please let me know what you think. And please, if you have information about any of these incidents that you don't see, do share that with me. I would greatly appreciate that. Right, and your Twitter, what's that? It's like a million underscores and then MJB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my Twitter is, and I have to look it up because I forget too. So it is... One, two, three, four, five underscores, MJB. Right, catchy. Okay, thank you very much, Megan. That's been brilliant. Thank you so much, Jake. Have a great day. That was Megan Badette speaking about the missing women in Afrin and just the general abuse that goes on there under the occupation of the Turkish-backed militants that are still in the area. Um, if you like what we're doing at Puppy the Front and you want to see this keep moving forward and you want to get bonus episodes and you want to get discounts on merchandise and you want to get access to the community discord and you want to see the Too Cool for J School educational series and you want to hear narrated articles and yeah and get your name on the podcasts go to patreon.com slash popular front for as little as five dollars a month you will um get bonus episodes we do at least two a month to be honest the bonus episodes are kind of like a separate podcast now like there's so many of them where we cover different topics sometimes we go into like historical stuff um the most recent one was covering the guerrilla politics of uh murals in ireland and northern ireland it's interesting very good one there um, yeah, patreon.com slash popular front. Check us out. This episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue 97239. Uh, the episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA one in the south and one in the west check them out on social media at grindcore house the episode is also sponsored by propagandopolis an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda posters get prints at propagandopolis.com now if you want to advertise on popular front podcast episodes let me know at jake at hanrahan.tv that's my surname h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n now if you're a big corporate business like jewel was when they contacted us um don't bother like we're not into that as i've said this is independent we want to be free from kind of corporate advertising and strings and all of that we don't want that if you're an independent business but you're a fucking prick don't bother contacting us if you're an independent business that looks after its workers is fair um doesn't fuck people over believes in the power of uh, independent you know um media then hit us up if your product is kind of something that i think our listeners would like then you know we'll consider it we have very low rates considering how much um people listen to this we have well over a million unique downloads on this 
um, we get tens of thousands of unique downloads within the first day um, of our episodes dropping, the first week, sorry, of our episodes dropping, I should say. <laughs> I wish we had that in the first day, within the first week. Um, so yeah, you know, we, we don't charge ridiculous amounts, but like I said, we only have ethical businesses, good people, people that we think, yeah, that's kind of the popular front ethos. So again, if you're interested in that, let me know at jake at hanrahan.tv. Please don't bring any fuckery, like, just, just listen to this. We're not having, like, weird stuff on there. Um, you know, there was, if you've got, like, a mattress brand, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, it's not interested, it's no good. Um, but, you know, coffee, everybody likes coffee, popular front listeners, no doubt, drink coffee, doing their research and all sorts of mad shit. Um, Propagandopolis, obviously, very cool. Um, yeah, so, get on that. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, youtube.com slash popular front. By the time this drops, we will have a new documentary right there. It's called You Are Now Entering Free Cap Hill. It's about the rise and fall of the Seattle Chop, the uh, Capitol Hill Occupy protest. Um, I'm sure if you know about Popular Front, you know all about that. You will see how um, our lads Johnny LaFleur and Max Curtis were there on the ground covering what's going on. Not just showing that like, wow, this is a protest, but showing the kind of intricate, um, I guess, arguments and disagreements that people that were supporting it were even having inside there. The most interesting part to me is how it's like, oh, there's this occupied protest, we're all doing this. And then a lot of the black people that were a part of this protest, which is why the protest was meant to happen, were kind of like, uh, can you listen to us, please? Like, can you actually not just take over the space and do what you want? And can you listen to us? Which I think is a very interesting point. Um, a lot of people won't like that. You know, a lot of people try and romanticize what it was, but we're not about that popular front. We are not activists, we are journalists. So yeah, check that out at youtube.com slash popular front. Uh, Twitter is twitter.com slash popular front co or mine is at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n the instagram uh, instagram.com slash popular dot front uh, or you can follow mine at jake underscore hanrahan I activated that again because I don't know there's some stuff I want to put up here and there that doesn't fit within popular front I will be promoting some work that I'm doing outside of conflict so yeah I reactivated mine you can follow me there if you want don't fucking matter um yeah also also uh if you want to support popular front without being involved in like the patreon situation you can go to popularfront.co slash support you can make a one-time donation bitcoin however you want to do it um yeah anyway thank you very much for the following patreons without you none of this would be possible trust me if all these people vanished that's the end of popular front so again thank you so much to the following people they are nicholas butter ron swanson that yeah not that ron swanson but that's the name on there um jd jav bastian I, I, mate if i haven't said this wrong please tell me bastian guillermo ritmeyer ian froese james cully michael Akakan, ethan reyes fitz madrid joe watt alex northrop Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Maxwell Burke, Anthony Kabarak, top guy, good luck with everything, mate. Uh, Mike Barone, Don Wayne, Scott Hopton, Liam Williams, Fragile Feeling, <coughs> Chris Cusimano, Sebastian from the Discord, Degenerate Zero Alpha, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, um, I'm just got to refresh this page now because... What is wrong with this laptop? Uh, 
Right, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Prashant Singh, Azad, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Christina Rovetti, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley from Fallout Boy, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Berg Snyder, Scartoon Music, Stephen Davila, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Q-Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did and Defiance News, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock and Joanne Stocker. Thank you all so much. Like I said, without you, this would not be possible. We really appreciate it. And if you want your name on the episodes, go to patreon.com slash popular front. Hit the $30 tier. That's up to you or hit a lower one. Music uh, in this episode. The intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. Follow his music at samblackpf.com. Mm-hmm.